Jesus, thank you so much for giving us your grace, for convicting us of our sin. Lord, if we didn't have your Holy Spirit convicting us of your holiness and how wonderful you are, how perfect you are, Lord, we wouldn't have that opportunity to repent and turn away from our life and our sin and turn to you and the grace that you so freely offer. And Jesus, I pray that everyone in here would taste and see how good you are and how wonderful your grace is. Lord, I pray that no heart would be left in a thirsty state this morning, but I pray that your word would satisfy us. In Jesus' name we ask this by faith. Amen. 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 You know, um, old people, what's the polite way to say old people? Senior citizens, the elderly, you know, the gray-haired, the the wiser, the best, primetime saints, that's what they call them over at. (laughs) Well, they've, you know, they've started texting, texting's big deal. You know, the young people, we text all the time and we got all our, our logo, LOL means, hey, you guys are... Ten years ago, nobody would have known that. Uh, there's a whole bunch of other ones. But I, I've seen that the, the old people have kind of developed their own texting language. Did you hear about this? They have their BFF, which is best friend fainted. They have to text that quite frequently. BYOT, bring your own teeth. Their parties get kind of wild. I'm going to make sure. If someone falls down, they, they'll, they'll do CY, CBM. Covered by Medicare. <laughs> you know, if, so, if someone tells a really good joke, like all mine, the, I'm, I see the old people texting, the, the seniors, they, they text uh, L-M-D-O, which means laughing my dentures out. <laughs> so now you guys will know, if you get that text by accident, they text you, you know. One, one more, the G-G-P-B-L. If, if you see that text, be, be afraid, because it says, got to go, pacemaker, battery low. <laughs> so just say a quick prayer for them. <clears throat> Getting older is, is a challenge, right? Okay, well, we, we're in Genesis chapter 46 now, and Jacob is really old. He's been walking with the Lord for a long time, but he is really getting up there. Now, he's actually going to live quite a few more years, but... He's looking old. He's feeling old. He's approaching the end of his journey. So let's look now at Genesis 46 and see what we see. So Israel, Jacob, that's the other name for Jacob, took his journey with all that he had, and he came to Beersheba, and he offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. So he's right here. We're going to stop and and explain what's going on. Jacob has had his 12 sons and one of his sons went down to Egypt and thought he was dead. So after all these years, he finds out Joseph is alive. And Joseph says, come down here and live in Egypt because the famine is great and I will provide everything you need down here in Egypt. So Jacob says, okay, this is the only way I'm going to survive. I need to go down to Egypt. But he stops in Beersheba. Now, if you look at a visualize a map of Israel, Israel's is like a long skinny thing here, and Beersheba's at the very bottom of Israel right before you go into Egypt. And so he stops at this border of the promised land and and I think he's probably afraid to leave. Uh, why do you think he might be concerned? Well, he 
probably remembers a lot of stories from his grandpappy, Abraham. Abraham went down to Egypt, and it did not go well for him. You remember, he, he, the Pharaoh thought that his wife was beautiful, and so Abraham's like, she's not my wife, she's my sister. And that went horribly wrong. And so Jacob knows that going down to Egypt is a dangerous situation for a man of God. Egypt is a type of the world, and and he doesn't want to be known as a worldly man. He wants to follow God. He lives in the promised land, and so it's it's concerning to him. He's afraid. Now, what what do we usually do when we're afraid? When we come across this situation, ah, I don't know if this is really good. I'm kind of worried about this. What do we usually do when we're afraid? Well, typically we trust in our flesh, don't we? We look to our own abilities. We, we try to figure out what the best way to go is, and we go with our own ideas. And what does Jacob usually do when he's afraid? As we've studied his life in depth, we see that he usually trusts in his flesh. He usually looks to his own abilities. He usually goes with his own ideas, but he's getting older and he's getting wiser. He is learning to break himself of his dependency upon his flesh, what he can see. Going down into a foreign land where they have big armies is a dangerous situation. He feels like he's being almost forced into it. And he wants to make sure this is the Lord. And so what does he do? He stops and he he seeks the Lord. We know this because he's making sacrifices to God. He stops at Beersheba. He makes some sacrifices to God. And what is making a sacrifice to God back in that day? He would take a lamb and he would build an altar and he would kill that lamb and he would offer it as a burnt offering to God. And this did several things. This helped him remember that his relationship with God was not based on his efforts, but it was based on God being merciful to him and on the the blood that covered and took away his sin. He remembered this sacrifice. And so he he has this this kind of reminding himself that this is not about me. God cares about me. And God will provide a sacrifice someday to take, take away my sin completely. That would be Jesus. But right now, it's this lamb that pictures what God will do eventually. Secondly, when you make a sacrifice, you, you, you kill this innocent little lamb. We can name him Fluffy. We've had a sermon before called Fluffy the Lamb, where we talked about this lamb and having it as a pet. And he would be bringing this lamb around and then killing him. And oh, no, what is, why does he have to die? Because of sin. And when what Jacob has is he has a deep conviction of sin, and that's very healthy for us to remember. He remembered as he had this conviction of sin that sin must be paid for. It's a big deal. I was reading this book this week, and I was reading about um, this preacher, and he preached many, many sermons, and then he really had had a... meeting with the Lord. He, 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 he talked with the Lord about how nobody ever was responding to his sermons. And he wondered why nobody was responding to his sermons. And he prayed and surrendered that up to the Lord. 
And he, he said, what he surrendered to the Lord, he said, I don't want to be a preacher that everyone says, oh, that was a great sermon. He says, I want to be a preacher where people leave with a deep conviction of sin and God's holiness. And I was really impacted by that this week. And I was like, oh, I hope all of you leave today not saying, oh, that was a great sermon, although that's nice. <laughs> but I hope that you leave today with a deep sense of God's holiness and our unworthiness, of God's wonderfulness and our need for him, and also a dependency that he will meet us where we're at. So Jacob here, he's more interested now in pleasing God and seeking God than his own desires. You could say he's praying that thy kingdom come. I'm going, I'm going down to this, to this land of Egypt, but I'm really just wanting you, God. I just want you to be happy. I just want you to be known. I've learned in my old age to trust you. And, and so that's where Jacob's at right now. Now we go to verse 2. Then God spoke to Israel in the visions of the night, and he said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. And he said, I am God, the God of your father." In other words, I know all the stuff that happened with your dad and your grandfather and their trips to Egypt, okay? But he says, do not fear. Do not fear to go down to Egypt, for I will make you a great nation there. I will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also surely bring you up again. And Joseph will put his hand on your eyes. In other words, you're going to die in Egypt. God does not want his children to fear. God does not want his children to fear. Jacob, he stops at the border because he is afraid. And God has a solution to his fear. Fear debilitates us. Fear paralyzes us. One of our, our shows that Dana and I like to watch with the boys is Amazing Race. And sometimes someone has to do bungee jumping or jump out of a plane or do some eating bugs or some weird thing like that. And fear, we see it. Fear can just paralyze someone remarkably. Yet there, there's this unspoken acceptance of fear in our world. You tell someone, I'm afraid of that, and people are like, okay, I, I understand. And in the church... Fear is something we need to repent of. It is not godly. It is not Christ-like. Because fear torments us. That's the word that the Bible uses. In 1 John 4.18, we have a verse that says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. It says you're not allowed here anymore. Because fear involves torment, but he who fears has not been made perfect in love. What father would be happy if he came from home from work every day and his kids wouldn't come outside and play with him because they were scared of the outside? Or wouldn't run to the door to greet him because they were afraid that someone might see them? Fear doesn't lead us to relationship. But God has a solution for fear. 
It's awesome. And what is it? Well, it says right here in verse 2, Jacob, Jacob. He whispers, he speaks his name. He knows our name. He is intimately equated with, equated, that's not the word I meant to say. He's intimately uh, Acquainted, thank you, sir. <laughs> Acquainted with every part of your life. He knows what it is that you're afraid of. He absolutely knows it. Even our weakness. What name does God say to Jacob? He says, Jacob. He doesn't call him by his name Israel. Israel's his victorious name, his, his name that God gave him. You will be governed by God. I'm going to run your life. But no, he, he calls him by his weak name. His name of when he trusted in his own flesh. He says, hey, I know, Jacob, where you're at. God will meet us where we are at, when we are at our weakest. See, he doesn't let your weakness become an excuse for you to be afraid. You're not not allowed. God says it's not okay. I know how weak you are. I know your name is Jacob. I know your name is fearful or whatever your name might be in your weak state, but he speaks peaceably to us there. He calls out to us. He calls out our name, our weakness. He calls you out on it. He knows it. He knows who you really are, but yet he invites us to respond to his voice. And he meets us today in Denver, Colorado in 2016 by giving us his Holy Spirit. He comes to anyone who will ask, anyone who will call upon him. He gives the spirit to anyone who would respond to that. In 2 Timothy 1.7, it says, For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and a sound mind. That's how God response when he calls your voice he's not just calling you for no reason he's calling you to give you his spirit and that spirit will give you power love and a sound mind fear it casts out that fear secondly not only does he call our name to to solve fear he knows where you're at he knows where you're weak and it's not an excuse he offers you his spirit to change who you are on the inside but secondly He draws your attention to him. He says, I know you're afraid, and if I were you, I'd be afraid too, because you're pretty lame and weak. But I, who am I? Who am I? That's what he says here. He says, I am God. He says, he, God, draws the attention of this fearful man to his own character, which is the solution to fear. Anytime you're afraid, you got to concentrate and learn the character of God. He says, you're afraid, I get it, but look at me. Study my character and learn who I am. He says, I will make you a great nation. Remember my promises. I will keep my promises. Remember the promises of God. So study his character. I am God. Second, he says, I will keep my promises. I will make you a great nation. I'm making you promises, and I will not lie to you. Look at me. Look me in the eyes. Third, he says, I will go down with you and bring you up again. This is the presence of God. So he says, look my character. 
Look at my promises and finally look at my character or look at my presence. My presence will go with you. That works when you're afraid. If you will learn from the scriptures how to treat your own soul when you're afraid, you can have victory over fear. Fear is not how God desires his children to live. Remember the character of God. Remember the promises of God and remember his presence is promised to us. We don't ever need to trust and rely on our own abilities. If we do, you should be afraid because you are weak and I am too. We can trust the person of God through his spirit to go with us. Isaiah 41.10 gives this promise. He says, fear not for I am with you. My presence, be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. That's his promise. That's who he is. And that is the solution to fear. And Jacob gets that right here. He, he gets this vision from God where God responds to him with these three things, three ways where he can have victory over fear. Jacob gets it, and we see now Jacob packs up and heads out. He's ready to go. He says, verse 5, Then Jacob arose from Beersheba, and the sons of Israel carried their father Jacob, their little ones, their wives, in the carts which Pharaoh had sent to carry him. I'm going to pause right there because we studied the carts a couple weeks ago. The carts of revival, these carts speak of God's grace, God's resources, the new covenant, there's God's ability. How was Jacob, how did he make it to where he was supposed to go? Through God's ability, not his own, in the carts, in God's grace. So they took their livestock, their goods, which they had acquired in the land of Canaan, and they went to Egypt, Jacob and all his descendants with him. His sons, his sons' sons, and his daughters, and his sons' daughters, and all his descendants, he brought with him to Egypt. So now we have listed in these next verses the names of every Jew alive at this point in time. Uh, you know, when I was in Israel, you go to the Holocaust Museum, and they have this big, huge room with all these books, these uh, notebooks, and they're all filled with names of all the Jews that were killed, and they have most every name of all the Jews that were killed in the Holocaust. And it's this huge room. It's really daunting and, and quite amazing. You're brought to tears just by coming into it and realizing what it is. It's all black. And uh, it's amazing. The millions and millions and millions of Jews that we have today in the world, each one of them is a testimony to God's promises being true, his faithfulness, and his love. And we see that uh, just throughout history. But right here in verses 8 through 27, we're going to skip them because it's a lot of names, and I pronounce them very poorly. One of them, his name is Job in there. You can check that out on your own. Um, we're going to skip down to verse 27. All the persons of the house of Jacob who went to Egypt were 70. Now, about 250 years later, there's going to be over a million coming out of Egypt. So this is quite the growth program they got going on. They're going to be protected in the land of Goshen. We're going to see that when we study Exodus sometime soon. No idea when. <laughs> All right, we get to verse 28 now. Then he sent Judah before him uh, to Joseph to point out before him the way to Goshen. 
And they came by, uh, to the land of Goshen. So Joseph made ready his chariot and went up to Goshen to meet his father Israel. And he presented himself to him. And he, and he fell on his neck and he wept on his neck a good while. And Israel said to Joseph, Now let me die since I have seen your face because you're still alive. This is such a cool reunion. Remember, they've been many, many years. Joseph was a young teenager when he left, when he was sold into slavery. His father thought he was dead for all these years, and now they're reunited. Now I wonder what it was like when Jesus rolled up into heaven after dying on the cross, rising from the dead, and I wonder what his reunion with the Father looked like. Probably was pretty cool. I want to see that, that DVD or Blu-ray probably when we get in heaven. I'm sure there's like emotional cello music. I, I always lose it. And, you know, when movies, when there's cello music and, and a reunion of like a, a long lost, those are the best in movies. I always lose it there. All right, verse... Uh, 31, then Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and say to him, my brothers and those in my father's house who were in the land of Canaan have come to me. And the men are shepherds for their occupation has been to feed livestock and they have brought their flocks, their herds and all they have. So it shall be when Pharaoh calls you and says, what is your occupation? That you shall say, your servant's occupation has been to with livestock from our youth even to now, both we and and also our fathers, that you may dwell in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. So the question is, why does Joseph want them to be shepherds? Why does he want them to continue to be shepherds? What's the point of this scripture here? He does not want them. Well, A, Jesus was a good shepherd, right? So that's cool. But he doesn't want them to join the world system. See, they could have gone down to Egypt and plugged into the Egyptian society, you know, doing their Egyptian dances and whatever fit into the society. But jo Joseph, he, he's very concerned about that. And he says, no, I want you guys to keep being shepherds, stay separated from this worldly system that they got going on there. He doesn't want them to trust in the way that the world gets things done. He wants them to trust in how God has called them to do things. Egyptians didn't like shepherds at all, apparently. But he doesn't want them to try to change who they are in order to please or connect with unbelievers. He, they can, he's saying here they can stay in Goshen together and still keep their family united, and that's how God is going to make them a great nation is because they're going to be isolated from the Egyptians in this little area. See, the world does not respect what God has called you to do, but you need to do it anyway. The world cannot understand things like going to church every Sunday, going to an anchor group during the week to just talk, to, to study your Bible each day, to die to yourself and the things you dream about for your life that you would put them aside for, for others, um, to, to wash the feet of those who are weak, weaker than you. The world does not understand those ways. And it will cost you to be an outcast. It will cause you to be an outcast to this world. But Luke chapter 14, verse 26, Jesus declares, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. 
So we need to accept the role of an outcast. Popularity won't matter before the throne of God when we all have to give account for our lives. It won't matter how many people liked you, but it will matter if you serve the Lord. We get now to chapter 47, and we're going to press on. Then Joseph went and told Pharaoh and said, My father, my brothers, their flocks and their herds and all they possess have come from the land of Canaan, and indeed they are in the land of Goshen. And he took five men among his brothers and presented them to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to his brothers, What is your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, Your servants are shepherds, both we and also our father. And they said to Pharaoh, We have come to dwell in the land because your servants have no pasture for their flocks, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. Now therefore, please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. And Pharaoh spoke to Joseph, saying, Your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Have your father and brothers dwell in the best of the land. Let them dwell in the land of Goshen. And if you know any competent men among them, then make them chief herdsmen over my livestock. So Pharaoh treats them well for the sake of Joseph. Pharaoh obviously likes Joseph a lot. He saved his entire nation. And Pharaoh understands that they don't want to become Egyptian, and he respects that. The way to reach the world today is not becoming like them, but rather being who we are, filled with the life of Jesus Christ. Honestly, they will respect you more if you have convictions than if you try to outdo them in their own games. In the 1990s, Christian music was in a sad state of affairs. And there was a young man, well, he was an old man trying to be a young man named Carmen, rapper. I'm sure he's a great guy. But he tried to rap in a song called, what? What was the song called? Jesus People, Jesus, well, I don't know. Anyway, he's like 50, and he's trying to rap. And it, it was so embarrassing. <laughs> as, a, as, a, as a teenager, I was like, oh, embarrassing. But I kind of liked it too. DC Talk did better, but still. And remember those Christian t-shirts? Like Reese's, except it said what? Jesus, Jesus? yeah. <laughs> oh, be original, guys. Come on. Make your own t-shirts. Anyway, verse 7. Joseph brought his father Jacob. This is awesome. And he set him before Pharaoh. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to jo- Jacob, how old are you? He doesn't say hello. He doesn't say nice to meet you. First thing he says is, how old are you? Jacob, I said he was getting old, but he must have looked just like, you know, like death, you know. He's just very old. Well, he must have looked, you know. He's actually going to live quite a few more years, but I thought that was interesting. Verse 9, so Jacob said to Pharaoh, the days of the years of my pilgrimage are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they've not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their pilgrimage. So Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from before Pharaoh. So he talks about how ages have changed a little bit, and this is really interesting because before the flood, how old were people? You know, 800, 900, almost 1,000 years old. 
The environment was different. There was a canopy over the earth that blocked all the harmful sun's rays, and so people lived longer. There was no, none of this radiation that caused the decay of the cells. And so people lived longer, things got bigger, people were bigger, all this stuff. And in fact, Noah was only a few hundred years before Jacob in this time. And the world has repopulated since then. But Noah, he lived a, a couple hundred years after the flood. His son, uh, Noshem, lived long enough to personally know and speak to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Shem probably has just died recently. This old guy that was on the boat just recently died. And he, when he died, he was like 800 years old. He was very old. And so Jacob, he's like, yeah, man, I'm not even as old as, nearly as old as my fathers, my grandfathers, and all those guys. So that's a little interesting. We studied the science of that when we were back in Genesis chapter 1, which I'm sure you remember was like a year and a half ago. <laughs> so, but here we see that Jacob blesses Pharaoh. And this is a big deal because Pharaoh was thought to be a god in the, in the culture of the Egyptians. So Pharaoh must have been pretty impressed with Jacob and his connection with God in order to allow such a thing to happen. Um, people aren't impressed with us. They look at us and they're like, wow, you're old. Or, wow, you're ugly. Or, wow, you're, what are you? You know, they, people aren't impressed with us. But when we have a connection with Jesus Christ, God, people can be pretty blown away by that. Have you noticed that? You remember the disciples? After Jesus had died and risen, these disciples were going through the city and they're like healing people and raising people and all kinds of miracles happening. And, and the, the Pharisees looked at some of these disciples one time and they're like, oh, they realized that they were not smart. Just by looking at them, they're like, these are, not, these are untrained men. Yet, they said, but they had been with Jesus and so their ministry was powerful. That's, what, that's kind of what J Pharaoh sees in Jacob's life here. People are looking to see if you have something to offer them in God's name. In the name of Jesus. When Paul was in a uh, boat wreck, he landed on the island of Malta at the end of uh, Acts chapter 28. He goes and, and he's um, serving the natives. So the natives come there and they kind of save them and they're washed up on the shore. And the natives don't speak, and, but they're just watching and they're like, oh, okay, so they've been in a crash. So obviously the gods are angry with these people. So we'll see what happens. But they've been saved, so maybe the gods like them. And so... Then Paul is making these, he's serving, he's, he's building a fire, right? Like you and I, we're just serving, just minding our own business, serving Paul. He's tired, he's wet, but he's dying to himself, serving. He picks up some sticks and a snake bites him, all right? So when the snake bit him, all the natives are like, oh, this man was surely a sinner because even though he survived the boat wreck, God sent a snake to bite him so he'll die. But Paul, what does Paul do? He's, it says he shook it off. He just, blah, get off of me, snake. Didn't swell up, didn't die, was just fine. And he continued serving. He continued getting sticks and serving them. And so the natives observed this, and they changed their mind. And they said, Paul must be a god. And they tried to worship him. And it just goes to show us that people in this world, they're watching you. They don't speak your language but they're watching you. And when sometimes a snake comes and bites you in your life, you get in a car accident, you get sick, you have to get fired, whatever happens in your life, and you shake it off. 
You just say, I'm going to keep serving the Lord. I don't care what happens to me. Cancer? Get out of here. I don't care. I'm going to keep serving God. People respond to that. People are watching you and they're like, I want what you have. Tell me why you're able, you're enabled to do such a thing. All right, verse 11. So Joseph, Joseph situated his father and his brothers and gave them possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramses, and as Pharaoh had commanded. Then Joseph provided, you can underline that verse, Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with bread according to the number in their families. Just like Jesus, and we've seen Joseph as a picture of who? Jesus, so many times, 50, 60 different times, we have seen Joseph picture Jesus in a different way. Here, Joseph provides for his family. He takes the responsibility to provide for his family, which is exactly what Jesus does. He takes the responsibility to provide for his family, his brothers and sisters in the Lord, which are us, the children of God. So here's the question. Are you trusting that? Oh, I didn't, I'm hoping you wouldn't ask me that. Are you thankful? Or does it challenge your pride to have to acknowledge that you need someone to provide for you? You know, a lot of broken people, poor people, they accept Jesus just so freely. It's so easy for them because they know they can't make it. But Americans are terrible at accepting Jesus sometimes. Because we have it made. It's so easy here. And we have to really be broken in our soul, in our heart. We have to have a deep conviction of our unholiness, of our unworthiness, in order to have God able to pour out his blessing on us. Jesus wants to provide. But we have to let him. We have to acknowledge our need for him. It's not just for missionaries to trust Jesus in everything. It's the expectation of every child of God. Let him be your father. You be a child. That's your responsibility. Jesus says, unless you become like a child, you can't even come to me. You have to come in that way, that total true child life. It's his joy to provide for his children, and it should be our joy to come to him and trust him with all our own needs. Man, I I was reading a, a biography this week of George Whitfield. Really awesome, awesome preacher, and it really ministered to me. One, as he was getting old and frail, he would preach 40 hours a week. Not study 40 hours and preach once. Preach 40 hours a week. Sometimes 60. That's, homeboy was amazing. Okay, so he was so old and so weak that they had to carry him up onto the pulpit. And then they would lean him up and he would stand there. Okay, so he's like, it was weekend at Bernie's preaching, right? So he's there. He looks dead. Everyone's like, is he dead? Is he alive? What's going on? And he would say, he would mumble. He'd say, I will now wait for God to strengthen me. And sometimes he would wait in silence, looking like Bernie, for five minutes. And, every, and he would preach to like 1,000 people, 10,000, 20,000 sometimes. And he would be there, and he would wait five minutes, just waiting for the Lord to strengthen him. And then he would rise up and preach for two hours. So we're going to do that today. (laughs) What? You don't want to do that? Come on. Bring it. I only get to do this one hour a week. No. 
I love preaching. Okay. It should be our joy to come to him with our needs and watch him meet them. So what are our needs? What could we wait? I mean, I need a Lamborghini. Let me wait for this. I'm going to wait for a long time, right? That's not God's will. That's not God's heart. Okay, so what are our needs? Well, do you have a, you have a need? You do. I can tell you right now, you have a need to love other people. You have a need to love those people in your life. Because they look next to you. They, some of these people are not lovable all the time. <laughs> some elbows just were thrown. Well, we have a need for that. So anytime your lovable spouses or your friends or your family or your children are testing and trying you, do George Whitfield. Wait upon the Lord and say, Lord, I need your strength right now to love this person, to be patient and kind with them. Mm, I need you. It is the Lord's joy to provide that to you. Wait upon him. He won't make you wait forever, but he, is, he does want you to come to him and prove your sincerity by saying, I'm not going to step out until I know that you have made me loving. I'm not going to do it. I trust you. Patience, you have a need for patience, don't you? Wait upon the Lord for it. Well, I need patience to wait upon the Lord. True. Wisdom, anyone ever need wisdom? Absolutely we do. Peace, you have a need for peace. God doesn't say he doesn't want you. He wants you to have peace. It's a requirement. Why do I wait upon the Lord? Ask him. He will provide it. Gentleness. Do some of you just need to be a little more gentle sometimes? That's a command to be gentle. We got to trust the Lord. He will provide. Jesus will provide. Jacob provides for all the needs of his family. Jesus takes the same responsibility for us. Gentleness. uh, Self-control. Anyone have a need for self-control? Yes. Purity. Same thing boldness you know purity some people think like there has to be a way some people struggle in the purity area and they think that there's a system that can fix them there's not wait upon the lord jesus christ for his life he wants to be the one to provide he doesn't want to say i went to aa and now i'm not an alcoholic anymore that does not give glory to god say i waited upon the lord and he filled me with the spirit now i'm free from sin that glorifies jesus christ that's what i'll always tell people Boldness, we have a need for boldness. Our city is dying and going to hell. And we are partially responsible because we're not bold enough. So we need to wait upon the Lord, ask him for those things he'll provide. He will provide. That's his word. Verse 13, now there was no bread in all the land, for the famine was very severe, so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished because of the famine. And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan for the grain which they bought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. And when the money failed in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us bread, for why should we die in your presence? For the money has failed. Then Joseph said, Give your livestock, and I will give you bread for your livestock if the money's gone. So they brought their livestock to, to Joseph, and Joseph gave them bread in exchange for their horses, the flocks, the cattle of the herds, and for the donkeys. Thus he fed them with bread in exchange for their livestock all that year. And when that year had ended, they came to him the next year and said, 
we will not hide from our Lord that our money is gone. My Lord also has our herds of livestock. There is nothing left in the sight of our Lord but our bodies and our lands. Why should we die before your eyes, we, both we and our land? Buy us and our land for bread, and we and our land will become servants of Pharaoh. Give us seed that we may live and not die, and the land may not be desolate. Then Joseph brought all the land, bought all the lands of Egypt for Pharaoh. For every man of the Egyptians sold his field because the famine was severe upon the land. So the land became Pharaoh's. And all the people, uh, he moved them into cities from one end of the borders of Egypt to the other end. Only in the land of the, of the priests he did not buy. For the priests had rations allotted to them by Pharaoh. And they ate their rations which Pharaoh gave them. Therefore they did not sell their lands. Then Joseph said to the people, Indeed, I have bought you and your land this day for Pharaoh. Look, here is seed for you, and you shall sow the land. And it shall come to pass in the harvest that you shall give one-fifth to Pharaoh. Four-fifths shall be your own as seed for the field and for food for those of your household and for your little ones. So they said, You have saved our lives. Let us find favor in the sight of our Lord, and we will be Pharaoh's servants." And Joseph made it a law in the land of Egypt to, the, to this day that Pharaoh should have one-fifth except for the land of the priests only, which did not become Pharaoh's. So here we have this story of Joseph working with the people. He, he doesn't withhold life. He doesn't give up on them. He doesn't withhold life-giving bread from the people. He provides what they need. And what's really cool is the people were very willing to give their entire life back to him because he showed how much he cared for them. He had the foresight to see what they needed. He had the ability to provide what they needed. And he had the love to give what they needed. Again, Jesus Christ for us. This is why Jesus was so upset when he rolled up into the temple and he saw the money changers exchanging money and the people selling doves in the temple. He was furious because those people were making it difficult for people to have a relationship with God. They would say, oh, your money's no good here. You have to use temple money. And I'm going to charge, I'll give you temple money, but I'm going to charge you a very high exchange rate. So you have to give me more of your money to use the temple money to give to the Lord. And Jesus is like, I hate you. This sucks. What are you doing? Then they were exchanging animals. And they said, no matter what your animal looked like, oh, your animal is ah, lame, spotted. That's not good enough for God. But, oh, just so happens I have some pre-approved animals right here. Come buy one of my animals, and you can go have a relationship with God. And the people were, prohi- were prohibited from having a real, true relationship with God. The people were so frustrated, like, forget you, forget God. And that's what the church has done many times in the church's history, too. Saying, oh, you have to do it this way. You have to dress like that. You have to do these things. So difficult for people to know the true and living God when they can't even approach Jesus Christ. Here we see Joseph as a wonderful example of saying, I'll provide for you. 
And the people, their response is, take my whole life. Take it all. I just want to serve you. Isn't that cool? That's how we produce men and women who love Jesus Christ and serve Jesus Christ, is we tell them how much Jesus loves them and has provided for them, not what they should do to make God happy. That's how we grow people. When we started this church two years ago, we were young in the Lord. A lot of people were young in the Lord. And we didn't start out with how to serve God classes. We have just consistently talked about how much Jesus loves you and how much he has provided for you in grace day after day, week after week. And guess what? We're going to keep doing that. And God changes hearts and provides hearts of people. And we've been praying that God would raise up servants for children's ministry, for youth, for every part of the body that we need. And what we're praying is not that God gives us skilled people, but that God gives us broken people who love Jesus so much they just want to serve. That's what we're doing, and that's what the Lord is doing for us. Now, verse 27, So Israel dwelt in the land of Egypt, in the country of Goshen, and they had possessions there and grew and multiplied exceedingly. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the length of Jacob's life, so he lived another 17 years past his old, old, old stage. So the length of his, of his life was 147 years. And when time drew near for Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, Now if I have found favor in your sight, please put your hand under my thigh and deal kindly with me and truly with me. Please do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers, and you shall carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burial place. And he said, I will do as you have said. And he said, Swear to me. And he swore to him. So Israel bowed himself on his head of the bed, on the head of the bed. Next week is going to be when Jacob dies. We're, we don't get there yet, so you don't have to cry yet. But he's getting close, and Jacob is really concerned about this. And he, he brings Joseph in, and he says, I want you to make me promise. And remember, they had that weird promise thing where he'd be sitting there, and he'd make his, put his hand under his, his uh, thigh and get his face real close to him, real awkward-like, right? And he'd say, make me this promise. Look in my eyes and see how serious I am about this. I do not want our people to be identified with Egypt. I'm the patriarch. My name is Israel. Our entire country now is called Israel. I do not want to be buried in Egypt because that's not where I'm from. That is not my identity. I am from the land of God's promises. That's my identity, God's promises. That's what I call myself by. And I do not want you to bury me there because... He doesn't want the children to think, well, Grandpappy Israel is buried just right around the corner. So this must be an important place for us. You know, they didn't have playgrounds, and so I guess graves were like the exciting thing back in the day. And he's like, I want to make sure my grave is in the promised land. I don't want them to think that we have any part of what's going on here. What is your kingdom? What are you concerned about your legacy being? Are you concerned about what people will think about you in this world? Or are you concerned about your identity just being in God and his promises, his kingdom? So what do we really see in these two chapters? In conclusion, I know we've gone long today. Two chapters is pretty impressive. We see this company of people 
that are being trained to walk with God. Of all the people in the world, these are the only ones that are doing things differently. They have a heavenly mind about them. They're the only ones. All the people in the world are doing just whatever they think is right. They're, they have their own gods, their own way of doing things. But these people, these 70 people, God is doing something very different with. He's setting up a group that is going to learn how to trust him even when things don't make sense. Even when he says, go down into Egypt, a place that's dangerous. They're learning the blessing of obedience, these people are. That God will work in the, in the very normal, or God will work in the very strange situations of our life, and he commits to doing that. He commits to having a relationship, a partnership with these people, that they will be called his people, that he will be their God. And through this little group of people, he is going to be a light to the entire world. These people are intended to be a partner with God in reaching the entire world with the truth of the gospel. That's the intention here. That's what God is doing. That's why we're following this family. And the rest of the Old Testament continues to follow this family. And what we'll see is they'll continue to fail, and God will continue to rescue them. And then they will fail again, and then God will rescue them again. He is, a, he is not a big, mean, scary God in the Old Testament. He's a patient, loving God who has chosen these people to represent him. And that's why we're going to see the law. We're going to see all these things happen. He wants these people to be his people, a special people. And, and what do his people look like? Well, first we've seen in these people that they're troubled by their own sins. They're convicted. They're, they're guilty. They know that they're broken and they've sinned. But they, they're learning as a people the importance of sacrifice. Jacob, he gathered all 70 people at the beginning of these two chapters, and he says, we're having a sacrifice. Blood. They're learning that they are guilty, but number two, they are cleansed by blood. And this is going to be ingrained in them so much that only blood cleanses from sin. And fast forward 4,000 years, John the Baptist comes on the scene and he says, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world as he's pointing at who? Jesus Christ. And we're, so we're seeing this people that understands the importance of blood. They're guilty, but they know they're forgiven. And number three, they're learning how to serve God with a new life of grace, a new and living way, not the old dead way that all the rest of the world does it, but a new living way, a new life pumping through their hearts, Jesus Christ. Believing that he is everything that they need. We need to search our heart and see if that's true for us. Is Jesus all important to you? Is he your God? And if not, we need to confess and repent in dust and ashes. Amen, Richard. He calls us out as a loving father, and he calls our name, Jacob. Jacob, what are you afraid of? Look at me. He promises all the grace and power that we need, yet he demands our whole hearts, a complete response. How can we turn away from so great a salvation? How can we? A, that's our ending question. 
How can we not respond? So I told you I've been reading George Whitfield's biography, so I'm going to read to you a closing statement from him. He said it right when he said, Awake then, you that are sleeping in a false peace. Awake, you carnal professors. You hypocrites that go to church, receive the sacrament, read your Bibles, but have never felt the power of God upon your hearts. You that are formal professors, but you're baptized heathens. Awake, awake, and do not rest on a false bottom. Come away, my dear brethren. Fly, fly, fly for your lives to Jesus Christ. Fly to a bleeding God. Fly to a throne of grace and beg God to break your hearts. Beg of God to convince you of your actual sins. Beg of God to convince you of your original sin. Beg of God to convince you of your self-righteousness. Beg of God to give you faith and enable you to be close with Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, you are so good, and yet you are so holy, and we are but sinners. We've rejected you for many of the days of our lives. We have sinned against you, Lord, and we pray that you would wash away that sin by the blood of your cross. And as we prepare our hearts to to take communion and to solidify what you've done in our hearts today, I pray that you would do a spiritual work in each one of us. And if anyone in here has never been washed clean of their sins by the blood of Jesus Christ, I pray that they would take a stand with you today, that they would respond and they would say, I need to be forgiven of all my sin. And I believe that Jesus Christ is the only way that I can be forgiven, that his blood, the very blood of God, paid the price my sins deserved. I pray, Lord, that you would Make many perfectly clean today by faith. And Jesus, we ask that you would deeply convict us of our sin. And Lord, that we would run to you and not away from you. That we would open your word and seek you out. Jesus, you are all in all and forgive us when you're not. Make us new. By your Holy Spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name.